meal with anyone from all of history, who would it be and what would you be most excited to talk to them about? If you'd have a meal with anyone from all of history, who would it be and what would you be excited to talk to them about? Give you a second to think about that answer. I was asked this question uh, on one occasion as an icebreaker question at, at a gathering of ministers and preachers from churches down in the Dallas area. Uh, and, and I took a minute to think about it and came up with my answer. And then they had us get in small groups and start sharing our answers with one another. Um, and so just out of curiosity, how many of you chose someone famous and well-known, a major historical figure, someone big deal? How many of you chose a family member? Yeah, so that happened in the room I was in too, where I chose, uh, I think I, cho I just read a book that, or article the week before on Teddy Roosevelt, and I was like, man, I've got some questions I'd like to ask him. So that was my, my person. He's someone that's bold and brash and just lived big, uh, and I sometimes have a reluctance to do that, and I thought I could learn something from him. And so that's who I picked. Um, and then like the other three people at my table were like my parents. They've, they passed away, and I would do anything for one more conversation with them. And I thought, oh, my answer, maybe I should have said that. And I felt kind of bad about it. Uh, but as we went around the room, it was really interesting seeing how people responded to that question, how they thought about uh, what they would do with one meal and one conversation with someone from history. How would you choose that person? How would you choose the topic? Uh, and it became an incredible icebreaker as people had to kind of say, uh, explain their relationship with a lost loved one or why they picked a certain famous person from history. Very different conversations from very different people, but it's a conversation that very quickly breaks down uh, a lot of barriers and gets you talking about some meaningful uh, stuff. You know, it's important to remember the past. We talked about this a little bit in class this morning. Uh, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, and uh, for many, that's just a kickoff to summer. It's an opportunity to go to the pool and to grill out and maybe go to the lake. I know there's a lot of empty seats today who are uh, maybe joining us from the lake. I know last year we had people that were worshiping with us on a boat, which felt very biblical. Um, so that was kind of neat. We're able to do that today in ways that we haven't been able to do in, in the past. Um, but for many people, Memorial Day, as, as it is intended, and as Jeff mentioned in, in, a few minutes ago, it's a time to remember, uh, especially those who died in the military or the armed services, sacrificing their lives uh, for our country. It's also a time that, that many uh, just remember lost loved ones, placing flowers on graves or remembering uh, the legacy that a loved one had and the impact they made on their life. And it's important for us to remember those who've gone before us. Uh, there is something about remembering the past that gives us deeper roots and anchors us better in the present. And it gives us hope for the future. So often we commit this, the sins of the past because we don't learn from them. So often we're anxious about the present because we forget that, that we've gotten through tougher stuff than we're going through before. The past is a blessing that gets us through the present and the future. You know, every week at church we have a special memorial celebration that we do. It's the communion service or the Lord's Supper. Or in some churches they call it uh, the Eucharist is probably its oldest name. Uh, the Eucharist is a name that 
uh, in the Greek comes from the word you, which is good, and charis, which is grace or gift. It means good gift uh, or good grace. Um, sometimes it's translated into English as thanksgiving. Uh, it's an opportunity for us in this meal of bread and juice every week to remember the good gift and good grace that Jesus gave us on the cross and in his resurrection and in his invitation that we can join with him as part of that. Uh, it's a memorial meal. It's an act of remembering. But it's important that, that we understand it because if we understand what's happening at the meal, it's not just us casting our brains back into the past to remember something that happened. The communion meal is not a, a history lesson every week. It is supposed to shape us in the present and change how we function as a community with one another. It's supposed to be an opportunity for us to reflect on our life and our relationship with God and one another. It should be something that is one of the most important things we do every week, but a lot of times we think it's just something Jesus told us to do, so we do it. And we're good at following rules, and so good for us. Um, and Jesus does tell us to do it. And I want to read that passage from Matthew chapter 26. It tells us, starting in verse 26, that while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Now, Jeff mentioned the Passover meal earlier, and it's so good that he did, because what, what they expected, this is a Passover meal. This is a meal that the apostles and disciples and Jesus had taken every year of their lives. When the, the leader of their house would get together and lead them in the Passover meal, and every time they would take the juice, there were certain things that would be said. And every time they would break the bread, there were certain things that would be said. There was an order to all of it. There was an expectation in that moment. And Jesus changes the words. He goes off script here. At the moment that he breaks the bread, he should have said, this bread reminds us of how quickly we left Egypt. It reminds us of the haste with which we had to rush out of there. It reminds us of the bitterness of the leaving but it reminds us that God delivered us. It's a reminder of the deliverance we had from Egypt. And so take this bread and remember how God got us out of there and got us wandering so that we could head towards the promised land where we are today. And Jesus breaks the bread and says, this is my body. And they all would have looked at each other and said, what? What does he mean this is his body? And he doesn't really fill them in. They're going to learn about it soon, but he's just giving them then what they would need later. And then he gets to the juice and he says, uh, now take this drink. And let's get back into the text. We'll read this here. Uh, then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's two things they would have understood there. One is they would have been expecting Jesus to say this juice is a reminder of the deliverance and salvation of God. It reminds us that God was good and heard the cries of his people in Egypt, and he came and delivered them. This juice reminds us that God saves his people. 
And he says, drink from this. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's taking an old thing and making it totally new. For us, we think of communion as the old thing. Communion is the new thing that Jesus is beginning here. He says, listen, God delivered in the past uh, through Moses and the plagues and out of Egypt. He's delivering in the presence. He's delivering you from your sins. The, the transgressions and the things that you do wrong and the mistakes you make, those things separate you from God. And I'm going to pour out my blood to get rid of that separation. No longer will this be a problem for you. And they would have said, boy, that is not what we expected him to say. And then he says, and I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And they would have thought that what he meant was that the kingdom, the earthly kingdom that they were all waiting for and longing for was going to come before the next Passover, that it would come in the next year. This would have been extremely exciting to them, especially after just seeing uh, all that happened as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the, the, the praise that was going towards Jesus, the excitement, the enthusiasm, the expectation, and, and now to be told that it would be this year before the next Passover. And yet what Jesus knew is that the kingdom was going to come in an entirely different way. An entirely different uh, thing was going to happen, uh, that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be crucified. And after three days, he would be resurrected again. And that would be the ushering in of the new kingdom and the time when Jesus would begin taking this meal with the followers of, of him as their Messiah again, much sooner than they expected, but certainly much more, uh, much different than they were expecting. And so the meal becomes this new thing, a new thing that, that's one of the first things that Christians start doing together after uh, the church becomes the church. In Acts chapter 2, we see Peter give the first gospel sermon, and, and several things happen immediately. Thousands are baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins so that they can have the, receive the Spirit and the gift of eternal life. That happens immediately. And then almost immediately after that, they start eating together in their homes and worshiping Jesus and remembering him all the time. And as often as they're gathering together, they're sharing these meals. And these meals and this baptism are, are physical things that have this spiritual reality. These people are being changed by their baptism and being changed by this meal. And it's not just an individual change. It's this, this community change. It's changing their relationship with one another. Some of you have heard me share uh, before about the movie uh, Babette's Feast. It's a 1987 Danish drama, and it's a really powerful movie. And I want to tell you the story of Babette's Feast. It's based on a book that was written uh, in the 1940s. Uh, Babette's Feast is a movie based on a short story by Isaac Dennison. It tells the story of a small, devout Christian community along the, the dark coast of Jutland in Denmark in the late 19th century. So it's, you know, it's some time back. The main character is a woman named Babette who arrives there as a refugee from the political turmoil of, of the Paris Commune. Things in Paris have gone really badly and she's had to flee. And she arrives there as a refugee in Denmark. 
And when she gets there, there are two kind but impoverished sisters who give in to her pleas to be taken into their home. These two older women are the daughters of the man who was the founder of this original uh, Christian community. He was the, the minister and the founder of the religious fellowship in the village, and he had passed away some years earlier. And they're now struggling to keep the community alive. They're struggling to keep everyone together. The people who live there struggle with pettiness, arguments, and all of the little struggles that can cause communities like this to eventually die. The sisters teach Babette to prepare their meager meals, which they share with the poor and the sick. And for decades, she serves them faithfully in exchange for only a tiny, simple room and enough food to live on. Then one day, Babette learns she has a winning lottery ticket. Uh, everybody assumes that she's going to leave the village for an independent life in France, go back and reclaim all that she lost from her previous life. But instead, Babette sends to Paris and she orders the finest foods, the finest uh, wines, china and crystal. She plans and prepares a wonderful feast for the little band of religious folk on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the birth of their founder. But all of the other villagers, uh, they don't think this is right. They're upset about the meal and they begin grumbling and complaining about what Babette is doing. And while they feel they must accept her hospitality, they agree that they will not enjoy it, right? This is how grumpy villagers work. I mean, we'll go, we've got to go, but none of, it, we, none of us are going to have fun. We're all going to complain and just, right? So that's how the setup is. The dinner approaches and the guests arrive, and as the meal progresses, the pleasures of these pious folk, have never, they never imagined a meal like this. And they begin to uh, get them to enjoy themselves. And then this funny thing happens where they even begin enjoying one another. A visiting nephew of the wealthiest member of the community uh, is a military officer who is well-cultured and well-traveled. He's a, a real connoisseur of fine things. He's so impressed by the entire experience, and he begins telling uh, everyone there that the only time in all of his experiences of great restaurants he's ever experienced anything like this wonderful feast was at the finest and most prestigious restaurant in all of Paris, and that they've got to enjoy it, and they all begin to enjoy it. Those gathered at the table soon begin to warm to the feast and the meal and warm to one another. Old grudges are forgiven. New pleasures are experienced. And in the end, those who came unwillingly go out and begin laughing and dancing around uh, the, the town square. Just a, a, a gentle dance, a, a, one of friends and old um, brothers and sisters. All of this is happening because of the specialness of this meal. Old grudges are forgiven, new pleasures are experienced. All of this, despite their age and the chill of the night air, they are so happy to be with one another. Only then is Babette's true identity revealed, and you may have guessed it. She alone with the sisters confesses that before the upheaval and chaos that drove her from Paris, that it was she who was the chef at the young restaurant the officer had been to in Paris. That, he, that she was the author of both of his finest meals. Further, she informs them that she used her entire lottery prize to give this obscure little village a banquet that they did not want, but that she knew they needed. 
The process brought about a reconciliation and joy that they could not have experienced in any other way. And I don't know if that story was written as an allegory for the Lord's Supper or not, but it certainly is one. It's a beautiful image of how Jesus, knowing that with all of our sins and divisions and grumpiness and all the reasons that we struggle to come together and to be made in his image and to be made brothers and sisters with one another, he came and paid an unbelievable price to invite us to a meal. That he gave so much and sacrificed everything, similarly to Babette in her lottery winnings, but, but in such a more real and eternal way, Jesus gives his life so that we can be invited to the meal. And when we gather around the meal, what we find is that old grudges get forgiven. And what we find is that warm feelings and a desire to take care of one another's needs develops. And the meal begins to form us, not just because we remember something that happened long ago and back then, but, but as shaping us as a community of people who do this thing together every week. It should change us. It should shape us. We don't just take this meal because Jesus told us to. We share this meal because it's an opportunity to share in the greatest banquet and feast that Christians have ever been invited to. And admittedly, it's not the finest ingredients that we use to cook the meal today, but it's not about what we are consuming. It's about what Jesus is inviting us into the life with him and the life with one another, celebrated and remembered week after week. And so it shouldn't surprise us when the Apostle Paul, in writing to the uh, Corinthian church, has this expectation that communion should change relationships. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's writing, and he's been talking about an abuse of the Lord's Supper that he's been hearing rumors about in Corinth. There's rumors that people are showing up, and the rich people show up and have a big meal, a banquet meal, with the rich people. And the poor people get there, and they leave hungry. Because there's this real tendency in our human nature to want to eat with people who like what we eat, and who have the money to afford what we eat, and who are like me, and are going to have dinner conversations that I will agree with. And Paul says, don't you know that that is an abuse of the Lord's Supper? And in fact, the meal that you're eating is not communion. It's something else. You should be coming together not with an excess and a lack, but coming together with a meal where everyone gets enough and you're sharing in it as a group of people whose relationships have been changed by your invitation to this very meal. It should be different. So he says, listen, you've got homes to eat and drink in. This is verse 22. Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not on this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is important for a couple of reasons. One is this, is that we do have a talk before communion every week, and we have a prayer, and then we, we close our eyes and we remember Jesus and the sacrifice he made in his body and in his blood. But it should also be a window for us, a moment that we look through the window of this meal and we look through it at our lives. You should evaluate yourself. You should examine yourself, Paul says. When you take this meal, it's not just a thing you do. It's a time when you say, God, reveal to me what I need to see about myself today. Who have I been lately? Have I been behaving like a follower of Jesus or a follower of something or somebody else? Have I been living in right relationship with you? Is this the first time we've talked since I examined myself last week? God, am I living in harmony and in good relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there someone in this room that I need to leave this gift at the altar for just a moment and go make amends with them and repair that relationship? Because that's the kind of thing that I'm supposed to be examining in this meal. I check myself out. I evaluate whether I'm living in unity with God and unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And if I'm not, the meal calls us to fix it. Because if you're, evaluate, if you're not evaluating yourself and you're taking the meal, you're not taking it. If you're taking the meal and you're evaluating yourself and then going, oh, well, not going to do anything about that. Not my problem. I don't want to think about that or do anything to repair it. Then you're drinking judgment on yourself. There is something that is so spiritually real about this meal that if you do it without doing the spiritual work, it, you can be judged for it. There's this responsibility to do the meal all the way. And all the way means you examine yourself. And all the way means if you've got to repent and change something in your life, you do it. And then you come back next week and you examine yourself and you see if you need to do something else or if you're in a good place. It's not a shame meal. Ideally, the meal is constantly shaping you week after week so that as you take it, you find yourself growing in your relationship with God and in your relationship with others. It should be molding and shaping us uh, like a sculptor. The meal should be forming us into a community of people where old grudges go away and new warm feelings develop that the Spirit works in us and through us to grow in us the character of God, that the meal is part of that shaping and molding of us, and that over time, as we examine ourselves, we are thankful for that growth, for how God blesses us through the meal. You know, there is something sacred that's happening here. It's a meal that brings us into contact with Christ, and, and, and it brings us into the presence of Christ. There were a lot of uh, arguments about uh, where Jesus is during communion, during the, the Protestant Reformation, and, and I'm not going to get into who said what and, and what they said, but, but the basic uh, ideas of it were this. There were some who said, uh, and this is kind of the Catholic position, is that uh, Jesus is in uh, the, the cracker and the juice, 
that they become transfigured into his actual DNA and you are eating the flesh and blood of Jesus, that it is uh, human DNA of Jesus Christ that you're eating. Um, and, and that's still kind of the position of the Catholic Church, that Jesus is what you're actually eating. Um, well, I, I, don't, I don't buy into that for different reasons. Um, one is it tastes like bread to me, so it just doesn't check out, or styrofoam, one or the other. Um, so I, I don't, that's not been convincing to me in my life. Uh, but there's another group that kind of said, uh, Jesus is present next to us while we take the meal. And there was another group that said, Jesus is present in us uh, in, during the meal. And then there's another group that said, uh, Jesus isn't there at all. Uh, he died and went to heaven. He's preparing a place for us. All we're doing is having a thought exercise where we remember him. And so he's kind of there in your thoughts, but in no actual uh, form of, of presence. And I tell that to you to tell you this, is that our tradition tends to lean more towards the thought exercise of communion. And I think Jesus is more present to us in the meal than that. I think Jesus has, listen, when one or two of you gather in my name, there I will be also. And, and there's something that's happening in this 1 Corinthians 11 passage uh, that's more than a memory. You can have a memory of Jesus and then leave unchanged. But, but Paul's saying, listen, uh, like last week where he said, don't you know that if you've been baptized, if you have sexual immorality, that you're connecting that sexual immorality to the body of Jesus? Because baptism really connects you to Jesus in a real way. And this meal is somehow connecting us to the presence of Jesus in a real way that if we only halfway do it or don't allow it to shape us is drinking judgment on ourselves. That there is this harm that comes from doing it wrong. And the harm is there because something real is happening in the meal. Jesus is present. And those of us who are baptized know that, that God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit, which is producing fruit in us. And, and so certainly God is in us. But I, I believe there is an actual presence of Christ during the meal that is sacred in a special way. That invites us to be aware of what Jesus did and the impact that it has on our lives today. And it should be changing and shaping us for the future. It should be changing uh, how we think about our relationship with God and with others. So earlier I asked you the question that if you could eat with any person from history, who would it be? Uh, some chose a famous person and some chose uh, a family member. Uh, and some of you may have chosen Jesus. Some of you may have said, if I could visit with anyone, I would just want to talk to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the thing that... Uh, that you need to know is that all of you would have imagined an experience that you expect would change your life. All of you would have imagined an experience uh, that would have been the most incredible meal that you would never take for granted for the rest of your life. And what I hope you're hearing today is that every Sunday morning, you have an opportunity to come to church with God in the presence of Christ and have a meal with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. And to experience what, what, what you want to share with him and to examine yourself so that you might hear what he needs to say to you through the meal. It should be a meal that you should never be able to take for granted. 
that should never become ordinary, that should never become uh, just a thing we do before we send the kids off. This is one of the most real and important things that we do on Sunday mornings when we remember uh, what Jesus did. And the last thing I want to say is this, uh, is that we think of remembering in our world as a thing that has to do with the past. Uh, That's unique to the Western world of of the last several centuries. Uh, In the ancient world, they remembered by reenacting. And so when you want to remember uh, the deliverance, the exodus from Egypt, you do it by reenacting it in a meal. Jesus tells the apostles, when you remember my death and resurrection, you're going to remember it by, by reenacting it in this meal that you do all the time. And, and the best way to kind of think about it is um, if you remember your wedding day. How many of you remember your wedding day who were married? Um, and if you're not married, you can remember your birthday, right? And, and most, none of us remember the day we were born, but we remember the, the date, right? And every year we celebrate our birthday and we celebrate our anniversaries. But when you celebrate your anniversary, you're really not just celebrating the wedding day. You're celebrating all the moments since and celebrating that you're continuing to be married forward. And when you celebrate your birthday, you're not really celebrating uh, what happened in a hospital room some many years ago. You're celebrating uh, that another good year has passed and another good year is hopefully ahead. And you mark it each year. And this is more like how the ancient world would remember things. And so when we take communion, we're not only remembering the past thing, we're reenacting it in the present so that we can keep living it forward. And so Paul writes that if you've received any blessing from being united with Christ, then uh, have a mindset that is like Jesus Christ who made himself nothing, putting the needs of others ahead of himself, so that, that he emptied himself being obedient even to the cross. That description isn't just what Jesus did in the past. That's our job description for the future that we start living into that every single day and that the meal that we share with Jesus each week reminds us that that's who we're called to be and how we're called to live, that we live the meal forward and that it changes our relationship with God and our relationship with one another week after week and month after month as we have a meal with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords every Sunday. We should not leave unchanged. We should be transformed people. So my prayer for you as we leave here today is that the meal we shared this morning with our resurrected Lord, that it celebrates what Jesus did in the past, that it allows you to examine how you've been living in the recent past and gives you an idea and a calling and a sense of direction for how you live tomorrow and the day after that, that the meal becomes a celebration and not a funeral. It's a job description and not a historical event. That all of these things happen on Sunday morning in the presence of Jesus by the power of the Spirit because God loves us and calls us to be His people. If you're here today and you've never uh, become one of those Jesus people, one of those followers of Jesus who takes the meal because you've been baptized into Christ and now you share a meal with him so that you can become like him for eternity. If you've never received that invitation and you want to do it this morning, 
Please come forward as we stand and sing. My precious Savior,